Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. You don't have to go and confess, we're looking for you. That song's called Bed Intruder. If you haven't heard of it, go look on YouTube and you will get brought into the wonderfully hilarious world of the Bed Intruder, the Bed Intruder remix, and all the offshoots from there. So many great things on YouTube, man. Okay, time for a Primal Endurance podcast. This is your host, Brad Kearns. We have so many questions piling up. A, because the host likes to ramble on for several minutes off of one question, going on wonderful asides and elaborations to appeal to the broad audience. You know, taking a simple question and bringing in these important big picture themes that can change your life and transform your approach to endurance training. But now let's try to set a record and hard hit these questions get the backlog going. We appreciate you so much contributing to the show and making it your own by sending in these thoughtful questions like Kevin Myers, where he says, question about lifting weights. If I read the book correctly, I'm basically never supposed to lift weights except for during the short intensity periods. That seems like a suboptimal strategy for lifetime health, though, and against the primal blueprint law of lift heavy things. On Maffetone's website, he has several articles outlining a strength training strategy that's up to three days a week of squats and deadlifts. Why is primal endurance so tough on strength training? And what's the best way to maintain muscle mass while abiding by the primal endurance strategies for my aerobic base building? Excellent question. Thank you. Uh, It was very difficult to convey that message. And so um, I chose to emphasize the concepts of periodization where We really, really want you to focus on building an aerobic base during that key period of time because so many endurance athletes are deficient in aerobic function because they never allow the body to just build those fat-burning engines without the interruption of high-stress workouts. And a lot of times those high-stress workouts include uh, strength training sessions or uh, boot camp or CrossFit type operations where you're really going to beat yourself up. You're going to get a lot of anaerobic stimulation. It's going to take you days to recover. You're going to be doing it twice a week and you're going to be totally screwing up your opportunity to build a base at the beginning of the year. But of course, strength training has an important point, especially as the athlete gets over age 40, uh, the magic time when you start losing muscle mass. Uh, year by year, unless you do something about it. So um, one great distinction that Maffetone makes is that uh, as an endurance athlete, you don't want to generate any soreness with your strength training sessions. So that's kind of an indication that you're potentially compromising your aerobic development, your priority if you have distinct endurance goals. Uh, Regarding the uh, primal blueprint law of lift heavy things, So that's a completely different um, distinction of uh, fitness recommendation because we're talking about building broad athletic competency and total fitness where when we're speaking to the endurance athlete, such as on this podcast or in that book, 
we're talking about someone with devoted endurance goals as a priority over just generally maintaining fitness, okay? So practically speaking, I would suggest that you dramatically tone down your commitment to strength training and your energy output during those uh, base building phases, especially the initial season opening base building period that should last for a minimum of eight weeks. You can still do it if you have a lot of competency in it. You're not getting sore afterward. You feel like they're giving a complimentary effect to your training and definitely not holding you back or causing you to have compromised performance in your aerobic sessions. So I guess it depends on how competent you are at strength training, uh, the benefits you feel like you get from it, how you really need to do it. You, you, it feels so good when you get in the gym two days a week. Um, and then during those intensity phases, you can ramp it up and uh, put in more difficult workouts because you're toning down your uh, endurance workouts in favor of doing sprints, intervals, more strength training. So there's times to emphasize it and there's times to de-emphasize it a little bit, but definitely has a place in the program. But uh, I love that uh, that distinction that Maffetone told me that, um, you know, once you go in there and you start getting sore, that's when you uh, are causing problems. And I get sore all the time, man. So I don't know what the deal is. Um, I'm trying to keep the, uh, the deadlifts and the other work in the regular rotation here. I don't have big time endurance goals. I have more of the sprinting type stuff like my speed golf efforts. So strength training does have a major component, especially being over 50. I want to make a huge commitment to that in the years ahead. But I'm trying to figure out how to not get so sore. Uh, any answers from the listening audience? Email them in to me, man. <laughs> okay. So now um, a question from Tori that says, Lucho and Brock tackled the same question on the Endurance Planet podcast. Uh, let's see. Um, I regularly train six to seven days a week for 90 minutes a day. I'm in a running phase, so I'm running 15 to 20K every single day. Uh, I wanted to ask your question. I'm about to undergo surgery. Um, I'm doing as much as I can to uh, adjust my diet beforehand so I'm super healthy, uh, etc. My question is, post-surgery, it's an ACL. I'm going to be unable to train as regularly as I've done the past 10 years. So what would you advise I do with my diet? I have the worry that a severe lack of training would warrant me to reduce calories in order to maintain my weight. But there's also the theory that the body needs increased calorie consumption in order to recover and repair from surgery. Remember, I'm a slim-toned female. That's the mindset that I have too. And so if I'm doing less, I feel like I need to eat less. Um, I don't want to lose my athletic body. However, I don't want to ruin my recovery easier uh, either. Uh, my diet's free from processed carbs and sugars. I eat under 50 grams a day of carbs anyway. Whoa. So she's training um, six to seven days a week for 90 minutes a day, <laughs> eating under 50 grams of carbs putting up high ketone numbers, 0.5 to 1.2. Um, would love to hear insight on the matter. And also get a little shout out to little old whales on the podcast. So thank you for listening all the way from Wales. Not sure if the Wales accent is a bit different more toward the Irish accent. I remember the great marathon runner Steve Jones after winning in New York City and thanking the crowd and the great country of America to put on this wonderful race for him to come over there and throw down at 207 and crush everybody 
even while he was a member of the Royal Air Force in Wales. Okay. Anyway, so the message there is coming from a pretty tightly focused person and concerned about calorie consumption post-surgery. My insight would be that I encourage you to loosen up and not worry about it. Eat the foods that you want. You already have a commitment to healthy diet. Yes, you need your calories and your nutrition after surgery to heal your body. If you happen, at the worst case, to put on two, three, four, seven pounds of excess body fat after your surgery, big deal because you're going to get back into it as a healthy person as long as you're eating healthy, nutritious calories. And I think we we have this uh, long-standing theme in the endurance community of athletes putting on weight in the off-season. And I think it's due to uh, fatigue, less disciplined dietary habits, and those free passes, that little, uh, those punch cards that are sitting in our wallets saying that uh, here comes the off-season, you can have more Ben and Jerry's and more uh, pizza pie fests and things like that. So I want to, again, make that important point that especially as endurance athletes, we have minimal or zero justification for consuming junk food. We have higher and more refined nutritional needs than the average population. Not talking about whether you have 20 pounds to lose or 5 pounds to lose or things like that. I'm talking about you're producing this highly tuned, high-performing machine that does not need to consume any junk food and can uh, experience inflammation and oxidative stress from consuming such junk food even if you still have your six-pack. We've hit that theme so many times, but it's worth repeating that uh, this free pass mentality that you put in a bunch of time working out so you can go uh, pound some sugar uh, needs to be reframed and recategorized. Now, if you want to enjoy some indulgent, delicious, nutritious treats, well-chosen treats that you can find in our recipe books where you have these delicious keto cheesecakes that are made with uh, you know, healthy whole food ingredients, and they might be high caloric, just like the fat bombs that Lindsay Taylor c- coughed up for the Keto Reset Diet and other books. This stuff is delicious, but it's made with nutritious foods. It's not throwing down junk food down your throat just because you're an athlete. So let's put that issue up first and foremost, that we're never ever talking about slamming junk food for any reason, especially post-surgery, right? But eating to satisfaction and not worrying in the least about restricting calories uh, correlating with your lack, uh, with your reduced activity. We want to get out of that mindset permanently and just honor natural appetite patterns, allow for the natural uh, uh, change in total body weight when you step on a scale, realizing that our body weight can fluctuate several pounds a day uh, just from water retention, inflammation, uh, post-meal binding of glycogen. One gram of uh, carbohydrate binds with three to four grams of water in the body as stored glycogen. So all that stuff can affect your weight on the scale. But really, when you think about it, uh, going up or down one pound of fat, which is really what we're concerned with when we're talking about changing our body composition, um, requires a, a sincere effort on the dietary side. So when you go on your cruise and you come back and go, oh my gosh, I gained five pounds, I feel like I'm such a slob, it's unlikely that you gained five pounds of body fat. That's eating 3,500 calories more per day 
uh, every single day. It's almost impossible, or, or 3,500 calories per each pound. So if you're eating, uh, if you're gaining five pounds and you're thinking that it's fat, that's what, 20,000 extra calories than you burned? Not really. That five pounds is mostly due to water retention, inflammation, things like that, because you exercise less and ate, ate more food, especially more carbohydrates. So it's transitory, and you can drop that five pounds off with a hard 10-mile run, followed by 30 minutes in the sauna. You can drop 10 pounds. I once dropped 11 pounds overnight. I wrote an article about it uh, way back when. I'll try to dig it up and put it on my new website. Okay, so uh, as athletes, we're going for healthy, nutritious foods, honoring natural appetite, not worrying about anything post-surgery except for getting better and doing your rehab and finding the most nutritious foods and staying away from the uh, stressful foods that create um, inflammation, oxidative stress. That would be sugars, grains, unrefined, vegetable oils. And aren't I keeping a fast pace? Eh, not really. Let's keep going. Okay, so... uh Dear Brad and Barbara, who's Barbara, thank you to both of you. Um, I have just read all your books, Brad, and Barbara, you inspired me to take more chances in life, so I'm so grateful. During my mother's last nine months of life, we lived together and I took care of her. We both decided to eat organic, healthy foods and just in general take better care of ourselves. During that time of eating better with my mother, I noticed a change in energy level and mood. I noticed that I felt different in the way my food settled making me feel less weighted down. I was curious. Four years later, my dad became very sick with diabetes, was in and out of the hospital, numbing leg and feet pain. No one could give him an answer to why this was happening. I decided to do some research. One day it dawned on me. The body is designed only for specific foods. Look at our ancestors. Where did this all begin? I asked myself. I started reading a ton of books on primal paleo, hunter, gatherer, whole foods. I dove in head first, went 100% keto. Oh my gosh. On July 2016, I began keto. I've been paleo since then too, and I've made it work. I went from 148 to 129 in two and a half months. My energy level was amazing. Then I got into weightlifting. Uh, I believed more is better. I overtrained, and then things have changed quite a bit. I went from full-time keto and paleo and weightlifting six and seven days a week to lifting two to three days a week, and I've never felt better. Uh, I was when I started this journey. I was 148 pounds of loose legs and arms with a BMI 27%, 18% fat. Now 36 years old, I'm 131, energetic, healthy body, 14.8% fat, 22 BMI. My cognitive function has improved immensely as well. I went, complete, I went completely off a six-year prescription for ADHD medication and Adderall. Uh, I've wanted to do this for a long time. I now eat when I'm hungry and have never loved dark chocolate more in my life. I'm excited and proud to say I've become a certified nutrition, life coaching, and fitness. I'm working toward opening on my own business. I have meal prepping class, class, nutrition lectures. I offer food shopping services. Wow. She's got the whole thing going. Lifestyle transformation. Thank you both. Uh, I'm forever grateful for the knowledge, and I hope you enjoy my story. That's from Olivia Forsyth. And we still don't know who Barbara is, but congratulations to Barbara, too, for your help with Olivia and her great message. Uh, here comes David Porter. I've listened to over 100 of your Primal Endurance podcasts. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for being along for that great ride. That's a lot of podcasts, man. I'm a 51-year-old trail runner. I can still run the Grand Canyon. 
Uh, this designated loop he describes in less than four hours with 5,000 feet of climbing. However, I've been suffering with heel pain, insertional tendonitis with bone spurs for about a year. I've spent $3,500 in treatments, six prolotherapy injections, acupuncture, scraping, cupping, physical therapy, but listening to one of your primal podcasts, you had a 30-second take on plantar fasciitis. You talked about holding that calf stretch for three minutes. A PT guy told me to go for 30 seconds, but your three minutes has been amazing. It seems to be breaking up all the scar tissue, and your solution was free. Thank you so much. That's why I also wanted to let you know that I took up bike riding eight weeks now, and I want to offload many of my trail runs at Maffrey to bike riding. I haven't ridden a bike in 30 years, but it's a perfect MAF exercise. The trail runs are impossible to stay at 130 beats per minute. I set my alarm at 165 to slow me down because he's going for these gnarly uh, 10 to 30% trail grades. So now I'm only doing one trail run run a week and the rest of it's bike. Uh, I'm sure my heart will appreciate it. I've also lost 10 pounds eating Primal. So for the past 15 years, I've been eating over 20 pounds of fruit and vegetables a week, but now I've given up the grain sugars and bad oils. I weigh what I did when I was 15 years old. Thanks, David Porter. Yes, we are now working on uh, releasing a video about the uh, cure to plantar fasciitis once and for all with these prolonged calf stretches, which absolutely changed my life and cured my 15-year case of plantar fasciitis in a matter of a few weeks, along with transitioning over to a more barefoot-dominant experience. So these stretches really work, but the key is to hold them for a long time. And we'll have much more coming out where you can watch the video and learn in more detail. But if you're suffering from plantar fasciitis, oh my gosh, there's help. Help is here. And it starts with that traditional wall stretch where you're pushing against the wall, right, with your back leg extended. And if you uh, straighten your back leg, you are applying the stretch to the soleus muscles, the two uh, muscles that run along the side of your leg and go insert into your Achilles tendon. And then if you bend your back leg, bend at the knee, you are now switching the stretch over to the gastrocnemius, that's the ball-shaped muscle up at the top of your calf, the rock, right? If you're Rip City, you got a rock in your calf, so it's the gastroc, that's how you tell them apart. So as you alter the position of your back leg, you're moving the emphasis of the stretch from the soleus to the gastroc. But the deal is, you hold these stretches for at least two minutes. And it's a brutally long time, especially if you're tight down there, which is almost certainly the case when you have plantar fasciitis. So if you hold these stretches, do them several times a day as much as you can, two minutes on the straightened left leg, two minutes with the knee bent, two minutes on the right leg, two minutes with the knee bent on the right leg. What you're going to do is lengthen these muscles. As you lengthen those muscles, you're going to teach them to lengthen by repeated stretching. Then you're going to take the pressure off of the arch, the foot. That's where all the problems occur because everything's too tight going all the way up the leg. It's amazing cure and you'll start to notice benefits right away uh, as you hold these stretches for a few times a day. And you'll also see just how difficult they are to hold. (laughs) So stick with it, get at it, get at the cause rather than treating the symptoms with all this nonsense, especially the orthotics that will ultimately Um, make things worse. Okay, Conrad Norton says, 
Hey, Brad, what a wonderful podcast with Mark Kukazella. I heard him once before on Endurance Planet with Phil Maffetone. What a guy. Mark talked about doing alactic sprints lasting only five to seven seconds. Uh, I think that word means your, your sprint is so short that you're not uh, developing the lactic acid accumulation in the muscles and causing that uh, soreness and damage where you have to recover a long time. So you can get good at sprinting, get good at leg turnover, explosive generating explosive force off the ground with proper technique by practicing sprinting, but making it uh, not strenuous either. So it's something you can throw in frequently. He said best perform them at the end of each aerobic run. From what I understand, this power-based training uses creatine phosphate for an energy source, much like low-rep, high-weight weightlifting. What would your advice be on implementing this type of training into a weekly schedule? Uh, My advice is to listen to whatever Dr. Mark says, because that guy is the man. (laughs) Uh, Go search the podcast archives for my lengthy discussion with him and all his unique and evolved training principles and his amazing streak of running a sub-three-hour marathon 30 years in a row, most of them over at Boston. And wow, this guy's a real powerhouse. He has a barefoot running store in West Virginia, one of the only ones of its kind in America, and he's doing absolutely phenomenal work in his hospital environment, getting sugar out of the damn hospital. The guy is a trendsetter for the planet. So if he says sprint for five to seven seconds, what a fantastic idea. And you know what, listeners? Uh, I have done a similar regimen at the end of my aerobic training runs for many years where I engage in my uh, sequence of sprinting drills, like high knees, uh, heel kicks, hamstring kickouts, and they are pretty strenuous. Uh, They definitely get my heart rate into beeping zone, but they don't last for that long. So they just sort of are the bookend to my run. I don't believe that they interfere with my aerobic development, and they have a great impact on getting my... uh, muscles, joints, connective tissue, resilient for my frequent uh, sprint workouts. So uh, when you're doing a little bit of stuff that elevates the heart rate out of the zone at the end of these workouts, I'm definitely going to give you a free pass there. Uh, Same with the five to seven second sprints, which is a wonderful idea to help refine uh, your running technique, because that's when you can really notice the, uh, the penalty for poor technique is exacerbated when you're running quickly. So if you're doing these pickups and feeling clumsy and not smooth and not explosive, you can definitely bet that you have technique flaws when you're running at a slower speed. So I like keeping that, uh, those brief explosive efforts into the mix. Now, if you're struggling with overtraining patterns, poor recovery, recurring and prolonged muscle soreness and things like that, uh, frequent illnesses, injuries, all that type of stuff in the mix, you are a person that needs to heal and pay even more attention to, like I was talking about at the outset of the show, uh, putting aside those strength training sessions for a while, even putting aside the short sprints for a while, and just getting out there, uh, rebuilding your immune system, building your aerobic system with slow, comfortably paced workouts, whether you're a cyclist or a rower or a runner. And it might mean for many, many runners, going from jogging to jog walking or fast pace walking because you've uh, ignored the realities of uh, the stress of uh, endurance training and just pushed yourself too hard for who knows how long when you were jogging when you should have been walking. 
I see so many people out there. That's why I'm talking about this. And hopefully those people are listening that have red faces when they're jogging along the levee in Sacramento or wherever I see you and say, man, I wish you would listen to the podcast and slow the heck down. There's no rule that says you have to run when you get out your door for a one hour session. Just because all your friends tell you that and you're training for some distant half marathon that someone conned you into signing up for, I would say go for the 5K instead. Enjoy the journey. Don't overdo it. Don't overstress yourself. And if that means a brisk walk, guess what? You're going to come out healthier than the person who's fighting to jog and keep some predetermined pace or whatever reason that they're jogging for. Whew, how's that for a little hit? Yeah, so the sprints are great if you are going along just fine and training well. Darren says, hey, Brad, I just finished listening to a podcast of yours on Trail Runner Nation. Oh, go listen to those guys, man. What a great show they have out there. I've been a guest on there three times with Don Freeman and Scott War, dedicated to the world of trail running, ultra endurance stuff. Lots of great guests, lots of great commentary. So thanks for listening uh, and listening to both shows, Darren. So I've been running for 12 years, done a dozen marathons, five Ironmans, three halves, two fulls, and two ultras at Comrades. That's the legendary race in South Africa which I think is close to double marathon, maybe not exact, 20, 52 miles, yeah, um, from, what is it, Durban to Johannesburg or some crazy course with thousands of people watching. It's one of the biggest events in South Africa and a very, very difficult competition. After a life of injury, I came across Maffetone's big book of training and have for the last two months begun training at a low heart rate, changed my diet to high fat and so forth. In his book, he mentions one-hour sessions with 15-minute warm-up, 30 minutes at maximum aerobic heart rate, and 15-minute cool-down. I'm training for a New York City Marathon in November. What distances or time should I be training at? I'm completely at a loss. Any help would be appreciated. Hey, Darren, relax. No big deal. There's no should here. It's whatever you feel like doing, whatever feels right to you at the time. Your intuitive sense will guide you into the most appropriate workouts. One thing that I like to present as a big picture is that you have this marathon in the distant future, so you want to approximate the challenge of what you're going to face on race day in training and escalate the degree of difficulty over time as you become fitter and better able to handle it. So tomorrow might not be a great day to go out and run uh, 20 miles, but maybe in uh, uh, September or uh, October, you might do your final uh, most impressive uh, training effort, which could be a 20-mile run to give you the confidence and get your body uh, accustomed to what you're going to face uh, on the starting line at New York City. So these breakthrough workouts that are the centerpiece of your training are the thing that you should focus on most, and that is, you know, what's the best you can do uh, today or the next appropriate day to stimulate a breakthrough in your fitness. It's difficult and challenging enough to stimulate a fitness breakthrough. The rest of the workouts are either fitness maintenance workouts or recovery workouts where you're just going out there for some basic exercise, rejuvenating the body rather than stressing it further. And those types are, of course, under maximum aerobic heart rate. Well under maximum aerobic heart rate is just fine. So it could be a brisk walk even, and you're just getting an aerobic training effect uh, that's very significant, even if it's very low and below your 
your math number. Not enough endurance athletes appreciate the benefits of the very low-intensity aerobic work that's energizing, rejuvenating, and still contributes to the fitness benefit because you're still tuning up that aerobic engine. But then once in a while, you open up the throttle. And so a breakthrough workout is either an over-distance nature, so it's longer than you usually go or longer than you've ever gone before, or it can be of the high-intensity nature. So if you're training for the New York City Marathon and you want to jog through the whole thing and feel strong, going and racing a 10K or a 5K can have a significant contribution to your overall fitness and your overall uh, adequate preparation for the marathon. It's as simple as that. Sprinkling in whatever you feel like doing on a particular day based on your energy level, motivation level, and state of health. And these are the guidelines that I take you through in the Primal Blueprint 90-Day Journal, a great book, an unsung hero of the series. Go look for it on primalblueprint.com. And it has all these uh, charts and guidelines to help you uh, keep a journal properly and cover the uh, matters of important information rather than most of the junk on the shelf that's asking you how many reps you did at all different six exercises in the gym. Who cares, man? Just do what your body gives you every day. Take what your body gives you each day in terms of uh, what kind of energy and effort you have to put out and don't try to force it. So as you progress toward this great goal in New York City, yeah, it'd be a great idea to have some long runs under your belt where you felt great, but never uh, to the extent that you're forcing something to happen that's not naturally meant to be on that day. Okay, here comes Matt. I'm wondering how pre-race or mid-race carbs affect my ability to burn fat. I'm training for my first full Ironman in Canada this summer and have been in nutritional ketosis for about six months. I started with the 21-day keto reset diet on January 1st. I went through a period where I was training with very little in-training fuel and mainly using Superstarch, the UCAN product, on my long rides. But on the five-hour rides, I feel like I need more fuel, especially when climbing. I've experimented with cliff bars, which seem to help on the climbs. I'm concerned about solid carbohydrates reducing my endurance and making me less efficient at burning fat for the remainder of my ride. Have you covered all all this already in a podcast episode that you can refer me to? Oh, what a polite question, man. I love that. You know, thanks for asking. Yes, go back to episode number 72. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, you know, I appreciate your sensitivity there. Instead of just flat out asking me the question that you want the answer to, whether I've covered it or not. <laughs> Anyway, I'll cover stuff twice. It helps to keep keep in the groove here. Um, and continuing, I'm hoping to get a much better understanding of whether my pre- and mid-ride carbs, the cliff Bars, are inhibiting my ability to burn fat. When I consume these carbs, am I triggering my body to switch from fat burning primarily to carbohydrate burning for the remainder of the workout? Or if I'm sufficiently fat adapted, will my body switch back to burning fat once the carbs are spent or my heart rate drops down? Yeah, that's good, interesting questions, Matt. Uh, My first reaction is it's not a black or white uh, competition here where you're either burning fat or carbs. You'll always burn a mix of these fuels uh, up to the point where uh, a full-out sprint is going to be, uh, you know, glucose burning from 30 seconds to two minutes. Under 30 seconds, you're burning these other fuels that uh, one uh, listener mentioned in their story, the creatine phosphate or the pure ATP. So forget about those scientific details for a moment. You're usually burning for an endurance effort a mixture of glucose to fat based on your level of intensity and also based on your conditioning and even your dietary habits, as we know from the great stories of 
people transitioning over to becoming fat adapted, Sammy Inken and Peter Atia and their well-chronicled experiments where they're pedaling along on an exercise bike, measuring their fuel substrate utilization in laboratory setting, and at the same speed, the same effort, they transition from burning mostly carbs when they were carb burners eating high-carb diet over to mostly fat in a short period of time. That's why the diet is so important. Now, when you're out there performing uh, in a race setting and you throw some carbs into the generally fat-burning engine, they're not going to have a deleterious effect as they might when you're sitting at your cubicle and trying to get in good groove with burning fat, and then you wolf down a cliff bar and continue on with your spreadsheet calculations. That's going to have a significant interruption, whereas a high-burning furnace, just like you can envision... Um, you know, shoveling coal into the uh, into the uh, the furnaces in on the Titanic, so it can continue to power. Um, not a big deal, okay? So you out there training, preparing for your big event, and noticing how you respond to different fuels during your workouts. That's the best way to dial it in. There's no hard and fast rules here. Like definitely don't hit the solid carbs; those will screw you up. If they feel fine and they're going down fine in training. Uh, go ahead, do what works, do what's appealing and appetizing. Um, yeah, I always tried to stay away from solid foods when I was out there racing because it's not a great time to digest anything. So if you can ingest your calories in a liquid form, that would be a nice way to go. Um, and the complex carbohydrate uh, you can is very popular these days um, and maybe easier to process than a straight sugar like an energy gel or uh, the stuff that's in a cliff bar, especially. Definitely don't need any fiber out there or things like that, which is contained in the cliff bar. But again, if it's palatable and it's worked for you in training, those are really good signs. One other thing I want to caution triathletes with on, though, is we have a tendency to go out there and do these 100-mile rides in training, and we swear by the hostess pie at mile 80, and we feel great on it, and then we go to the big Ironman race, and our stomach uh, conks out and blows up at mile seven of the run because that same hostess pie that works really well on a 100-mile ride, <laughs> you might not like that thing in your stomach as you set out for a 26-mile marathon run. So remember that specificity of what you're doing in training and applying it directly to your race goals to really know what's going to work. So in that case, we would try our fuel sources during a lengthy ride and then get off the bike and see how well our stomach sloshes around with all the crap we put into it uh, during the training ride. So we want to get by with uh, minimal fuel as necessary to maintain stable blood glucose levels. And remember the speed that you're going at, you're going to need more carbs as well. So those long, comfortably paced rides where you can get by with three gels and two uh, bottles of powdered energy drink, and I felt great. Oh yeah, but then you got home and you had two bowls of pasta and a giant recovery smoothie and you forgot to run the 26 miles. So I think a lot of times people get calorically depleted, but they arrive back at their driveway and think that this was a successful fueling strategy that will work on race day. So there's all kinds of variables where you really have to consider tying in what you're doing in training to exactly what's going to happen on race day. And I know from uh, experience doing these long races myself and from the other elite athletes because we were always trying to figure out optimal fueling strategies that it's just fine to throw down some sugar even if you're a fat adapted athlete uh, when you're trying to get through these uh, ambitious workouts and races. So 
do what works, try to stay with the liquid is, um, is my thinking definitely out there when it gets hot and all these uh, confounding variables come in. So here's Eric. I've got a question that I have not been able to find a satisfactory answer to uh, in the low-carb keto community. What things would you recommend to someone who loves keto but expends three to 5,000 calories a day during constant activity and two high-intensity workouts per day? How can keto work for lots of high-intensity workouts and lifestyle? I know it works great for low to moderate intensity, but what about high intensity? I've seen lots of half answers to this question, but nothing that addresses my specific points. Fueling my body correctly can be a matter of life and death. This guy's in the military, so that's what he's talking about, his high-energy, high-intensity lifestyle. I find it very, very hard to find keto info for war fighters instead of casual athletes. At times, my job entails two high-intensity workouts a day. That would be lifting and uh, bodyweight exercises or running, lasting for over an hour each. At other times, it requires climbing mountains at a moderate to furious pace, while also needing an energy bank that will support life and death fights if need be. As you can see, it's a complicated job that can have lethal consequences for myself or team member if I play the fuel game wrong. It's also important to say my lifestyle isn't this way every day all year. It's just weeks and months where it's less intense and some more intense. During the less intense times, keto works great for me. I understand the primal idea of doing less intensity, but hey man, my job's different. High intense, high stress. Uh, How can I eat enough fat without drinking olive oil and coconut oil all day to supply energy and stay performing at a high level? I'm at the point of abandoning keto during times when my intensity will be high, and maybe that's the right answer. Maybe you could point me in the right direction. So the first place I'd point you to is ketogains.com and the wonderful Luis Villasenor, who has been a high-performing bodybuilder and powerlifting athlete, very, very explosive workouts uh, for now 18 years in strict ketosis, almost without interruption for this very long duration time period. You can check out his physique. He's a high-performing guy, uh, packing on a lot of muscle with very lengthy workouts in the gym and working very hard and maintaining uh, a ketogenic diet. So it's very possible and very effective for even high-intensity strength training performers. The interesting thing is that uh, when you stay in ketosis, it has a protein, a profound protein-sparing effect. So a keto athlete will break down less muscle tissue in the process of high-intensity exercise than a carb-addicted athlete. Uh, That's why Dom D'Agostino is doing some important work with the military, not only for the divers, helping them handle the oxygen stress of diving and prevent seizures by being in ketosis, but also the other applications of the very highest performing and most important high-performing athletes we have in society, which is our members of the military. So yeah, these are high stakes, man. You got to get it right. You got to get it dialed. Um, Listen to my podcast with Ted McDonald, the uh, yoga teacher who did the Inca Trail in Peru in a fat and keto adapted state and his message that he packed the energy gels in his fanny pack. He had the psychological comfort of knowing that if he were to bonk, he could slam down the sugar calories that he needed for instant energy, but he wanted to see if he could do it without it. So maybe that story is relevant to you where you're out there doing crazy stuff and asked to sprint up a hill that maybe in your case you hadn't planned to. That's another big issue as compared to a general recreational athlete who knows exactly what they're setting out to do and how much fuel they might need. You might have extra fuel needs that were unintended, and so always have that fuel on you for emergency case 
where you're not just uh, going to be stranded and feeling uh, feeling like you ran out of gas. But I think maintaining uh, a ketogenic diet in that high performing lifestyle uh, is uh, quite uh, realistic, and people are doing it. Especially Luis, search YouTube for my interview with him. Uh, you can just search Brad Kearns, Luis Villasenor, V I L L A S E N O R. Uh, we talked at Paleo FX in 2018, and the title of the video is like uh, Keto for Strength Training Athletes or something. But again, this requires a lot of adaptation. There's some thinking here that is kind of an either or commitment. So if you're in the keto ish dietary pattern where your carbs are, uh, your carb intake is fluctuating to the extent that you're knocking yourself out of keto now and then or frequently. Maybe you won't be as highly adapted when a big day comes and you're trying to put out a lot of energy. So yeah, more information there at ketogains.com on that topic. And I hopefully I've given you enough detail, but we also have to always keep that intuitive component in there where if you feel funny and you feel like you're not recovering well from uh, the previous day's efforts, uh, it's time to consider um, some dietary modification and uh, perhaps increasing your carb intake during those heavy stress periods, especially afterward, right? Let's say you have a big day, you're going to make it through, you're going to make it through anything based on adrenaline too, right? I don't care if you're out of gas and you dropped all your sugar packets on the mountain. If you have three more miles to go to finish your mission, I think you're going to make it, but you might make it in a sorry ass state that would dramatically affect your performance the following day. Therefore, that would be uh, a good call to go and inhale <laughs> whatever nutritious carbohydrates you need that evening to account for a depletion style workout. Is that a satisfactory enough answer? Follow up, send me another email and we can talk further into this uh, important distinction and detail and strategic approach to uh, keeping the commitment to keto or low carb even in the face of a lot of high intensity performing. It's just a, it's a tough way to go, but it might be the best way to go because of the high stress nature of your daily routine, right? That protein sparing state that you're in when you're uh, maintaining ketogenic diet. You might come out way better than all your com compatriots there to the extent that they're asking you, hey man, let me see, how do you eat so I can feel as strong as you uh, for these crazy eight hour days? Thanks for listening. We got many more questions coming up in a future show. Have a great day. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too it's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my gosh. So she likes like the mayo on a Oh yeah, she, so, she loves those. So we love them as well. We have, uh, we, we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the, the ranch, um, the avocado oil we use all the time. And, and so, you know, that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.